Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now here's today's episode. Let's uh, move on from obstructive lung diseases to interstitial lung diseases. And when we talk about ILDs, it's partly a misnomer because they don't only just affect the interstitium, they definitely can affect somewhat of the alveoli and the capillaries. So we refer to those as sometimes diffuse parenchymal lung disease. And when I think about an ILD, regardless of the ideology, all ILDs will have four main things that are going to be in common. They'll probably see me because of a complaint, such as dysmion exertion. They're definitely going to have a widening of the AA gradient. You definitely will have that classic restrictive intrinsic pattern that we talked about, which is a low TLC, a low DLCO, a ratio that tends to be on the higher side, and a low FEV1, and a low FBC. And when we talk about imaging the chest, well, they should have bilateral uh, findings on chest X-ray, which is not a bad test to do first. But anytime we think about an interstitial lung disease, this is a time you do want to get that uh, high-resolution CT scan of the chest. When you get a high-resolution CT of the chest, it's not just having thinner cuts, sure, but we do that, the, the CT at the end of inspiration, the end of expiration. We do it when you're prone. We do it when you're supine. So there's more to it. And it's very important to get the high-resolution CT when you think of an ILD because if this turns out to be pulmonary fibrosis, especially idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, you could actually make a diagnosis only based upon the high-resolution CT and history and physical, which is a huge game-changer when we talk about diagnosing IPF. But you're going to do these things that all ILDs have in common, these four. And then let's say you get a high-resolution CT scan, and it doesn't show the classic findings that say, obviously, this is going to be idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, well, then you may need to get tissue. And if you want to get tissue, how do you get tissue on the board exams? Well, I would do minimally invasive things first, then go to the more invasive. So on the boards, I'd pick bronchoscopy. But nowadays, there are so many things you could do with the bronchoscope. When you bronchum, well, sure, you could get a bronchoalveolar lavage that may help out ruling out infections, may help out with certain interstitial lung disease, like these eosinophilic pneumonias, but it's not going to give you a diagnosis of a pulmonary fibrosis or anything like that. Transbronchial biopsies, sure, but these are tiny, tiny, tiny bi- uh, biopsies. You may not be able to diagnose many things that way. Nowadays, you know what I mean? Let me be truth. When you want to make a, a diagnosis of an interstitial lung disease, we present the case to an interstitial lung disease board like a meeting, a group, and we discuss it. And it's a multidisciplinary discussion about what would be the best way to get tissue. But if we do bronchoscopy, there is something called a cryobiopsy where they can freeze some tissue, get really big chunks. 
Sometimes they could do an EBUS, which is an ultrasound at the tip of the bronchoscope, where they could needle some of the lymph nodes, really helpful in sarcoid patients. And if I can't do it minimally invasive through a bronchoscope, then, of course, we need our friends from CT surgery to give us bigger chunks. They could do get a wedge resection done through a BATS procedure, uh, video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, or traditional thoracotomy. Once I get the tissue or make the diagnosis uh, you know, clinically, I need to determine, well, what type of interstitial lung disease is it? There are many ways to categorize uh, ILDs. So to keep it simple for your board exams, I put them into two broad categories. Is it occupational or is it not? Because no matter where you are on this chart, everyone here are going to have these four common characteristic clinical presentation. All of these will get evaluated in some way, starting with high-resolution CT, minimally invasive bronchoscopy, or sometimes a wedge resection. So if it's going to be occupational, I put it into two subtypes, inorganic, where that's the trigger. And that's not very, that is not tested on your board exams uh, right now. And these are going to be things like asbestosis, silicosis, co-workers, pneumoconiosis. And if it's not going to be inorganic, then it could be organic as a trigger for occupational. And of course, the one example here is hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And of course, that's always going to be someone who owns a cochleteal on the board exams. Please don't order a cochleteal on the boards. Uh, or they love hot tubs or something like that. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Then if it's non-occupational, well, the differential is very broad, but not for the IM board exams. And to keep it simple for the IM boards, non-occupational will be divided into sarcoid, or this category here is called the idiopathic interstitial pneumonitis. And the classic idiopathic interstitial pneumonitis is going to be IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. I did put all these letters under here, and my pulmonary fellows called this the alphabet soup, because under the idiopathic interstitial pneumonitis, there are all these NSIP, RBILD, LIP, COP, which is cryptogenic organizing pneumonia. I mean, there's all these different subtypes, but the classic one that they ask you on the board exams is the UIP pattern, usual interstitial pneumonitis, which is associated with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So these go hand in hand, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, UIP pattern. And those are the only two things they're going to ask you on the boards, sarcoid and IPF. So let's talk about both of those. So sarcoid is an orphan disease meaning that it's uncommon. We don't know what causes sarcoid. We don't know what the trigger is. It could be infectious. It could be environmental. But what we do know is that it can affect every single organ in the body. And what causes all the damage are these granulomas, these non-gaseating granulomas. And of course, where the tubes biggest mimickers of sarcoid is going to be infection. And what infections am I thinking about? Well, the ones that have granulomas. So you worry about tuberculosis. You worry about fungal infections. Of course, down here in the Southwest, we worry about what? Coccidioides emetis. The other thing is cancer, because you see all these lymph nodes, many people think they have cancer. So many people will be referred to me because there are abnormalities seen incidentally on a chest x-ray or CT imaging of the body. And to make the diagnosis, definitely we have to show that there are these non-caseating granulomas consistent with the history of a sarcoidosis. Now, sarcoid can affect every single organ in the body. The most common organ is always going to be the lungs itself, whether it's going to be as simple as mediastinal uh, lymphadenopathy, or it can invade the lung itself. But 
sarcoid could definitely affect the skin. And when we talk about sarcoid in the skin, you could have lesions on the skin that when you biopsy them, you see granulomas, or you could have skin lesions that have nothing to do with granulomas, but are associated with sarcoid. And the classic one has to be on my shins. We call that erythema nodosum. Because you know, erythema nodosum is not pathognomonic sarcoid. We see it in many different things like lupus, like coccidioides emetis, like tuberculosis, but it's also associated with sarcoid. And of course, they could have a disfiguring lesion on the face of someone with sarcoid. We call that lupus pernio. That's a very uh, poor prognostic skin lesion on the face. Sarcoid can definitely affect the heart. You can get heart block. You could get a restrictive cardiomyopathy, a restrictive pericarditis. It could definitely affect the central nervous system. It could affect every organ. And of course, I definitely don't want to forget the eye. So when you think about sarcoid in the eye, it can cause anterior and posterior uveitis, a retinal vasculitis. And let me just say this, in most cases, I don't usually treat patients with sarcoid. Most people will live their entire life and never have a flare. But the three organs that I always will be aggressive in treating will be the eyes. No one wants to be blind. The heart. And the brain, the CNS, those are ones I'm always going to be aggressive. In the lung, they just have some hyalur fullness like this chest x-ray up here. I probably am not going to do anything. So when we talk about syndromes for memorizing, a classic syndrome I've seen on the boards is Lofgren syndrome. This happens acutely. You have the trite of erythema nodosum, arthritis or arthralgias and hyalur adenopathy. And in the olden days, they would say that you can make a clinical diagnosis of sarcoid based upon the, this triad. But I always will say this, like in any rheumatological disease, including sarcoid, if you have the opportunity to make the gold standard, I would biopsy because it is a rare disease. And not only that, if you're going to commit someone to steroids and immunosuppression, then I would definitely want to get a tissue diagnosis. If this patient with Lofgren's is asymptomatic and I'm not going to treat them, then I wouldn't push the envelope at that exact moment to get tissue, only if I'm going to give them therapy. Herdorf-Waldenstrom syndrome. This finding here is lupus pernio, so it pertains a worse prognosis. Carotid gland enlargement, so sometimes sarcoid can mimic Sjogren's. It gets confused. You definitely can have uveitis and facial nerve palsy. So because of the CNS and eye involvement, you definitely want to treat. And we talked about diagnosis that you want to get tissue. And, I, you know, it always seems that we're always pushing the lung. The answer is you could biopsy any area of the body that's easy and convenient to make the diagnosis. But because the lung is the most involved, we always tend about talking about the lung first. And here it is a cartoon showing an EBUS where you could see a ultrasound on the tip of the bronchoscope kneeling the subcarinal nodes. And right here you see a non-caseating granuloma. And when we talk about treatment, I think the first thing is to make the correct diagnosis and deciding if the patient needs treatment. So indications, I put it right here. When do I want to treat the eyes, heart, CNS, or symptomatic pulmonary? And like any rheumatological disease, the minute I start steroids, I'm always thinking about taking them off because I always tell my patients with sarcoid that I will diagnose you with sarcoidosis. And after a while, Unfortunately, I'll give you another disease called steroid doses. And these are all the secondary diabetes and hypertension, and osteoporosis and insomnia and glaucoma and cataracts, all the things that steroids can induce. So I put a lot of steroid sparing agents here. Probably the most common one I use is methotrexate. And of course, you know, when you think about methotrexate, 
you want to start on the lower side, maybe 7.5, maybe 15 milligrams weekly and work your way up to around 20 to 25 milligrams weekly. Folic acid daily, check LFTs, check a hep B and hep C before starting, follow up your CBCs because methotrexate works on dihydrofolate reductase and therefore you could get definitely some pancytopenias. You want to check your cell lines over there. Other steroid sparing agents, of course, hydroxychloroquine for the board exams, always worry about the, the retinal toxicity with that. There's also imuran and mycophenolate. You don't want to be, definitely want to be careful not titrating these medications up too fast. It can cause GI upset. The only two TNF inhibitors we use on sarcoid are infliximab, goes by the brand name Remicade, and adalimumab, which is Humira. Of course, you definitely, definitely want to rule out latent TB, check Hep B and Chep C. And Actar is another type of biological agent that has some steroid effect, as well as working on what we call melanocortin receptors that got approval for patients with sarcoid. Not a very common drug that we use. If you have acute sarcoid, it's going to be steroids, steroids, steroids. If you can't get them off, probably the most common thing we use on the boards is methotrexate. 65-year-old female is evaluated for a 10-month history of cough and dyspnea. She reports no other symptoms or medical problems and takes no medications. She is a former smoker with a 20-pack year history, and she has no pets. On exam, she is normal tensive, non-tacky, but tachypnic at 24. Oxygen saturation is 87% on room air. It's bad. There is no JVD. Cardiac exam is normal. Lung exam has bilateral inspiratory crackles at the lung bases. Vigil clubbing is present. PFTs have a low TLC, a low FEV1, a low FBC and a decreased DLCO, a classic intrinsic restrictive pattern. They do a CT scan of the chest, and look at this on the periphery. This is honeycombings, traction bronchiectasis. These are classic findings, probably consistent with someone who has, let's find out, emphysema. No, it's not going to be emphysema. Is it going to be heart failure? No. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis, well, chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis, may give you pulmonary fibrosis at the end of it, but they got to give me, throw me a cockletil, give me some hot tub, you know, this seems like it's kind of like a diagnosis of exclusion or no pets, all these different things. So this is going to be what? Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. All right. So when we talk about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, it's always a diagnosis of exclusion. What do you want to exclude? occupational diseases so if they you know say someone who works in a shipyard who's a which is going to be asbestosis who's a sandblaster silicosis think about you know an alternative diagnosis drugs bleomycin if they have cancers amiodarone a classic drug i mean amiodarone think about the thyroid think about turning your skin blue <laughs> think about eye toxicity and of course lung toxicity so you want to make sure they're on medications that can do it rheumatological diseases, any room disease you talk about, lupus, polyendermatomyositis, scleroderma, rheumatoid arthritis, they all can give you pulmonary fibrosis. So to call it idiopathic, you have to rule all these things out. And we already talked about the workup, the PFTs. We talked about the role of high resolution CT scan of the chest really is a game changer because you don't have to biopsy these people unless you can't make a diagnosis on the high-resolution CT itself. If you do end up biopsying because you can't make a diagnosis with the high-res CT, you look for what they call fibroblastic foci. That really causes all the fibrosis in the lung. This is going to be the classic pattern that the radiologist will read or dictate. 
the features of honeycombing, peripheral, sub subpleural reticular markings, traction bronchiectasis, and it lacks other things like nodules. It usually lacks ground glass and other things. If they can't say it's typical UIP, then they'll probably use the word it's probably UIP, indeterminate for UIP. The minute they say these words, that's when you have to go and do a biopsy. Once again, I put another CT scan image showing some of the classic findings of honeycombing in this patient with the history and physical has idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. This slide could go in any patient with chronic lung disease. Of course, you always worry about microaspiration and silent GERDs. The more you aspirate, the worse it's going to make your lung disease. So maybe considering lifestyle modifications and if no contraindications, proton pump inhibitors. So let's do this one. Which of the following is the most common side effect of nitinanab, brand name OFEB, in the treatment of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis? So why did I put this question on the boards? Is because things have really changed when it comes to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. For the longest time, it was almost like, did you respond to steroids or not? In general, when we talk about ILDs, but for these patients, it was always a death sentence. It was always like transplant or not. And at least now we have medications that help slow down the decline of the FVC. And there are two agents out there. One is going to be natinanab, which goes by the brand name Ofeb. The other is perfinidone. But these medications have lots and lots of side effects, unfortunately. And the most common is diarrhea. So good job, everyone. So here are going to be the two drugs. Natinanab is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It actually prevents fibroblastic foci from proliferating, causing more damage in the lung. It inhibits fibroblastic growth factor, which is great. It comes in twice daily dosing, but it has side effects, the most common being diarrhea and nausea and vomiting. You know, perfinidone is another antifibrotic agent. It's dosed differently, but also has a lot of side effects. Talking about OFEV brand name, it also got FDA approval for scleroderma lung fibrosis. It also got an approval for many interstitial lung diseases when they go to a phenotype where they're going to a chronic fibrotic stage. So this is why this is the one that's going to be more highly tested on your board exams. But the classic thing it got its first FDA approval for is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis to help slow down the decline of the FVC. It doesn't make you breathe better. It doesn't help your cough. It pretty much will just give you diarrhea. And yes, my patients are upset at me when I prescribe it, but it's the only thing out there that slows down the decline of the FVC. I would not give these patients uh, these medications together, and one medication is not better than the other. And for IPF, you definitely want to use supportive care. If they need oxygen, please give it. Please send the pulmonary rehab, get their vaccinations. And of course, the key thing is right here for chronic therapy, do not, I put not with a underline use chronic steroids. Pulmonary fibrosis is not an inflammatory disease, so we do not use chronic steroids. And of course, with IPF, we want to refer them to lung transplant. If they exacerbate, and that's the key word here, circle it and underline it, acute exacerbation of IPF, we blast them with antibiotics, we blast them with steroids because it could be a flare of their underlying IPF. And sometimes we'll start an agent like an Imuran because it takes a while for these drugs to kick in. And if it's a flare of an IPF, this will help taper down the steroid. Let's do this one together. I'm not going to do a poll on this one. 77-year-old man is evaluated in the hospital for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. He was diagnosed three years ago and has gradually worsened despite therapy with steroids, Imuran, and mucomist. 
All therapy has been discontinued over the past six months because of failure to respond and side effects. And he's been homebound on high flow oxygen and has been hospitalized three times in the past year. Ugh, sounds bad. He just finished seven days of levofloxacin and he's like, hey, I don't want any aggressive therapy. I don't blame you. You know, the mortality with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is 50% mortality in five years. It's very, very, very sad. On exam, patients in severe respiratory distress, he is tachypnic and tacky, afebrile. O2 sat is 88% on 100% non-rebreather, bad. Patients with neck retractions, accessory muscle use, bilateral crackles are noted. CBC is normal. I don't know how they did it, but they got a chest x-ray and a CT scan of the chest. The chest x-ray shows peripheral reticulizations. Reticular markings are like spider's webs, overlay of spider's webs. But when they somehow got the CT, once again, they show diffuse honeycombing. So this is a flare of his IPF and someone who does not want to have anything aggressive done. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? It's not going to be intubating this patient. <laughs> this makes that hurt. Sorry, just saying it. You're not going to throw a BiPAP on him because you'll never take that BiPAP off. He's on 100%. He doesn't want anything invasive to be done. You know, hitting him with steroids at this point is not going to change what's happening to him. You know, he's had three uh, admissions to the hospital. And this is the most important thing I wanted to put here. The right answer here is D, palliative care. And palliative care is an amazing uh, group of people and option I have with many of my patients, scleroderma patients, IPF patients. They really help out. And this is something that should be done even earlier in the course of IPF and not just done at the end. And I think that's a big mistake many people make. But geriatric medicine is a hot topic, and palliative care is a, a very popular answer on your board exam. So the answer here is D. Let's talk about PE and DVT. So when we talk about pulmonary embolism, most PEs are limited and self-resolved. PE is still the third most common cause of cardiovascular demise uh, right after stroke and heart disease. We see more pulmonary embolism in inpatients. We see PEs in the upper extremities as inpatients because of all the catheters, dialysis catheters, central lines, Swan-Gans catheters. And remember, PEs in the upper extremities can definitely go on to develop. DBTs in the upper extremities can definitely go on to develop pulmonary emboli. So it's not just having DBTs in the legs, even though that's the most common thing that we see on the boards. Deep vein thrombosis anywhere in the body can go uh, to develop pulmonary embolism. So when you have a DBT or a PE, the question is, why? Why did they get the P or DVT to begin with? And it, it's very important to say, is there going to be a reversible or non-reversible cause? It's very important to say it's provoked or unprovoked cause. So our job is to figure out, well, what was their risk factors? And these risk factors include pregnancy and smoking, uh, birth control, especially when we talk about estrogen products, nephrotic syndrome. Of course, you're dumping out all these proteins like protein C, protein S, antithrombin 3 in the urine. Of course, perioperative, play reverence to varicose triad, anything that's alternations in blood flow, damage to the vascular endothelium, hypercoagulability, and other things that we tend to forget. Diabetes is a risk factor, being older in age, prolonged immobility, and, if, and any of these you know, rheumatological diseases when you have inflammation in the vessel. And even COPD uh, will give you a risk for developing a DVT or PE. But other things I wanted to mention are, of course, cancer, especially when you're older in age, we don't know the etiology. Cancer in itself is a risk factor. And of course, what we do is age-appropriate screening, unless they're symptomatic and have signs and symptoms of a very specific type of malignancy, 
we do usually age-appropriate screening as the workup. On the right, you'd see what's called a hypercoagulable workup. It's a, we definitely tend to overorder the hypercoagulable workup quite a bit, but it's involved is there are genetic predisposition to have a, a clotting, such as when we talk about the factor five Leiden mutation. You could have other genetic issues like the G20210A, but you could have protein deficiencies like protein C, protein S, antithrombin 3. Uh, people could have antibodies such as the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, or they could have elevated levels of homocysteine. We do tend to overorder the hypochromal workup. And remember that if you're positive for any of these things, then even if you have, if you've never clotted, if you never clotted, we wouldn't put you on anticoagulation. And if you already uh, clotted twice, it really wouldn't change your management, whether you have this or not. Maybe it would change it in a sense that you would maybe evaluate them in relatives, but we tend to overorder it. So the indications to do a hypercoagulable workup, definitely if you're clotting in a very strange place, such as what's a strange place, hepatic vein, which is a Bud Chiari, or a portal vein, or, you know, a very odd place to clot. Clotting in an artery is always going to be abnormal, family history. Then you would think about uh, doing a hypercoagulable workup. So let's talk about DVTs first. So when we talk about DVTs, venography, I wouldn't use venography to diagnose the DVT. It's very invasive and always the wrong answer on the board exam. D-dimers, D-dimers are, are usually going to be helpful when they're going to be negative. It has a very high negative predictive value. And when we talk about D-dimers, that you always want to think about your pretest probability. And it's really helpful if you have a low pretest probability is getting a D-dimer. And how do you know what the chance of a DT DBT in a patient will be? I put down a Wells criteria right here of some of the clinical characteristics with the score to let me know what is my clinical pretest probability of having a DVT. But D-dimer helpful with a low pretest probability, and it's very helpful if it's negative. For diagnosis of DVT, the most practical way to diagnose it, especially if the DVT is in the lower extremities, which is what it will be on your board exams, lower extremity DVTs, would be an ultrasound. You could do compression ultrasonography where you look for the lack of compressibility. You could do Doppler if you like to. MRI is not really a standard right now for diagnosing DVTs. And I'll do this one with you right here. Are DVTs more common in the left or right lower extremities? If I were to pull the entire planet, and because of time's sake, I'm going to have to answer this. Most DVTs are more common in the left. Why? One way to look at it is that the left uh, common iliac vein will transverse a longer course to get to the inferior vena cava, which is on the right. And because it takes a longer course, more chance for clotting. But there is a syndrome where certain individuals will, when the left iliac vein is transversing its long course, can get pinched between the iliac artery and the spine. You have a pinching of the left iliac vein. Well, you get stasis of blood and you could get clots. And does anyone know the name of this syndrome where the left iliac vein could get pinched? together? The answer is, it's called May-Thurner syndrome. So one of those, if they really want to be mean to you on the board exams and give you a syndrome, this is that syndrome. So let's switch gears to pulmonary embolism. How do we diagnose it? Well, how do I suspect it? I put down the Wells score right here for everyone to see what's their risk of getting a PE. 
And I put down all these different techniques of what you could think about ordering to develop if you want to evaluate someone for a pulmonary embolism. Just to be honest, the answer is if you really want to diagnose a PE, you and I know the answer is going to be a CT with contrast. But what would you see in any of these other tests? If it's going to be an ABG, most individuals will have a respiratory alkalosis because they'll be a little tachypnic in most cases. They'll have a widening of the A gradient and be somewhat hypoxic. But you can't diagnose a PE based on arterial blood gas. You could do a chest X-ray. And the most common finding on chest X-ray would probably be unremarkable, normal. But, you know, some of the buzzwords that you may see on the boards is a Hampton's hump, which is a wedge-like infarct in the lung. And you don't see this that common because it's difficult to infarct the lung because of the dual blood supply the lung has. You can see what's called a Western mark sign, which is a lack of markings. And this is usually seen in a pretty sizable clot in the lungs. And you can see the lack of markings on this chest x-ray on the left. And of course, you also can get atelectasis and pleural fusions. ECG, the classic ECG finding for a pulmonary embolism is always sinus tachycardia. I got to say that. But once in a while, you can, might find the S1Q3T3. And I have an ECG here to show that. And basically, it means right-sided heart strain. But once again, I wouldn't diagnose, you can't diagnose a PE based on chest x-ray or an ECG. VQ scan, you definitely can diagnose someone with a PE with, on a VQ scan. When it gets read, of course, they would say terms like, you know, it's a low probability or moderate probability. It's not a, you know, yes or no type answer. So, of course, your pretest probability is important. And we use, you know, VQ scans quite a bit in the olden days. Before, it used to be chest x-ray first, if it's normal, VQ scan. But nowadays, we only use a VQ scan if you can't do the non-invasive gold standard, which is CT angio. And the only reason why you can't do a CT angio nowadays is if they have renal failure. So it's very important to remember, once you diagnosis, diagnose a DVT, you diagnose a PE. And it's very important in the acute setting. In the acute setting, if you can't move the patient down to a CT scanner, by diagnosing a DVT, you know, in the acute setting, it doesn't change your management. Of course, once the patient's stable chronically, you definitely want to prove it's a PE for many different reasons. But in the acute setting, if you can't move the patient, uh, diagnosing a DVT diagnoses a PE. You could even give thrombolytics in the acute setting if you can't move that patient uh, down to confirm the PE in a CT scanner. This, of course, is the, non, the non-invasive gold standard, which is a CT angio. What study told me that the CT angio is a very good study to diagnose pulmonary embolism. It's the PIOPED2 study. And then just put a picture of it right here. Now, I'll answer this. A majority of patients with a pulmonary embolism will have a negative ultrasound of the legs. So if you have a PE, would you most likely have a positive or negative ultrasound of the leg? It's going to be negative. So the answer is true. And that's why, think of it this way. In the acute setting, someone comes in. If you do an ultrasound of the lower extremity and it's negative, did you rule out a PE? The answer is no. So if it's positive, great. If it's negative, they definitely can still have a pulmonary embolism. An echo is a great thing that we do quite commonly in the ICU, especially if you're hemodynamically unstable. It will rule things out when you're hypotensive, like a pericardial tamponade. There are some findings that may indicate a PE, but I really wouldn't anticoagulate someone solely based upon the findings of a transthoracic echo. And of course, the invasive gold standard is pulmonary angiogram, which we don't do in the acute setting because it's invasive. 
But you definitely would think of a pulmonary angiogram in the chronic setting, especially if someone ends up having pulmonary hypertension down the line, secondary to a embolism. That would be part of the workup. Can you treat a PE as an outpatient? The answer is yes. And of course, nowadays, we will admit or not admit patients based on clinical gestalt. But there are scoring systems such as the pulmonary embolism severity index to help us with that management. So 26-year-old man is evaluated in the ER for swelling of the left leg and cap for 24 hours duration. Medical history is unremarkable, but he reports his uncle had a DVT and he takes no meds. On exam, he's normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic. Swelling of the left lower extremity is noted. When they do Homan sign, this is foot pain. Doppler ultrasound confirms an acute DVT in the popliteal vein. All right. Based upon updated guidelines, which of the following is the most appropriate management? I'll just do this one because of time's sake. We're not going to give them compression stockings. The patient has a DVT. We already missed the bus. We're not going to give them a clot buster like TPA. That doesn't make sense. And you're not going to give warfarin by itself in someone who's clotted because that can make things worse. You want to give like a heparin product first before you just start warfarin. So the answer here is going to be one of those DOACs. The one, the classic, the only one here is Rivaroxaban, which is Xeralto. B. I want to talk about, you know, how to, about anticoagulation and DOACs. Last one is a 28-year-old is evaluated in the ER for swelling of the left lower extremity for 24 hours duration. Medical history is non-contributory. He takes no meds. On exam, he's normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic. Pulses are intact. He has a swollen left calf that's slightly tender to palpation. Labs have a normal PTT, normal platelet count, and INR. They do a Doppler of the left leg. Shows a DVT in the left popliteal vein going up to the iliac. All right. He has a DVT. Patient expresses concern about being on anticoagulation because his uncle had a cerebral hemorrhage while being treated for an acute coronary syndrome. He's being vague, but this person is basically worried, if you give me anticoagulation, why bleed in my brain? So according to several trials about the treatment of DVTs and PEs, which of the following is the most appropriate therapy? So it's asking, what are you going to give to have the least effect of bleeding in the brain? Well, we're not going to give antiplatelets because that doesn't treat the a DVT. So it's either going to be low molecular weight heparin plus Coumadin or one of the newer DOACs called Pixaban, which is uh, Eloquest. So which one tends to have less bleeding in the brain? Actually, it's our new DOACs. The answer is going to be a Pixaban. And let's talk about what does the data show. So traditional treatment, when we talk about DV, DVTs and PEs, we always think about a heparin product first, whether it's unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin. Of course, don't give low molecular weight heparin if they have renal failure. Uh, any type of heparin product, you always worry about it, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And we always start heparin first before initiating Coumadin because Coumadin inhibits uh, not only the vitamin K-dependent factors, but things like protein C and protein S. And of course, if you don't give heparin first, then you can get that horrible clotting and even get that skin necrosis. But when we talk about transitioning from heparin to Coumadin, the most traditional thing, the overlap has to be heparin for a minimal of five days. It's written out over here, a minimal of five days. And keyword is and when the INR is between two and three. So overlap for five days and when the INR is between two and three is how we do the overlap of heparin and Coumadin. The newer what we call DOACs, which are direct oral anticoagulants, that the main ones that we're going to be talking about are the oral factor 10A inhibitors. And the two ones that we 
mentioned on board exams, brand names are Zeralto and Eloquest. So when we talk about these DOACs, well, many of the studies looked at bleeding risk. There are minor bleeding. And of course, the one we worry about the most is major bleeding. Major bleeding in the majority of the studies was defined as dropping your hemoglobin, requiring a blood transfusion, or bleeding into a vital organ. And of course, the scariest organ to bleed into is the brain. The most common organ to bleed into is the GI tract. So let's look at those two specifically. So in comparing traditional heparin and Coumadin to these newer DOACs, interesting, in GI bleed, all the DOACs have an increased risk compared to Coumadin, with the exception of uh, Apixaban, which is the same risk as Coumadin. But I'll tell you, when they looked at all these studies, they kind of clumped all the factor 10 inhibitors and the, the direct dominant inhibitors together. And it really was dabigatran uh, that really dropped them down. Because dabigatran really needs a low pH in the stomach to get absorbed. And of course, you have a low pH in the stomach, you would definitely be predisposed to things like peptic ulcer disease. In regards to intracranial hemorrhage, interesting, all the DOACs have a decreased risk compared to Coumadin. And that's why the answer in this case was going to be giving, giving a Pixabam. So what are some special populations when we think about certain types of anticoagulation? Definitely in renal failure, you do not want to give low molecular weight heparin. If they're in the ICU and hemodynamically unstable, you could think about unfractionated heparin to easy on, easy off. You could give thrombolytics. Malignancy, low molecular weight heparin is a good answer. Apixaban is getting more and more data about that. Uh, and pregnancy, low molecular weight heparin is also going to be the drug of choice. IBC filters for the boards, keep it simple. If you can't anticoagulate, use an IBC filter. And of course, you definitely want to take these filters out because if they're left in you, you do want to try to re-anticoagulate them if they can tolerate it. This is a huge satellite PE. And if I were to ask you, is this a massive PE? The answer is still, I don't know. Because what defines a massive PE? Hypotension. And you could look as hard as you want, everyone, but anyone see hypotension here? <laughs> you can't. It's not, massive PE is not defined radiographically. And if you have a massive PE, that's the indication for revascularization. How can you revascularize? Classic way is thrombolytics. So lytic will be FDA approved when you have a massive PE, you're hypotensive, you're syncopizing from it, refractory hypoxemia. If you can't give a lytic because of bleeding risk, you could think about doing an embolectomy. And there are different ways to do embolectomy. All these are done by interventional cardiology or interventional radiology. And you'd only do this if you can't give a thrombolytic. Of course, if you can't do an embolectomy, there is open surgery, which has a very high mortality rate. When we talk about how does interventional or cardiology do it, there are many different catheter techniques. There's ultrasound-assisted thrombolysis, rheolytic embolectomy, rotational embolectomy, suction embolectomy. But the key thing is, no matter which one your institution uses, none of these have been demonstrated to be superior than the other. So revascularization will be thrombolytics if you can't do that, catheter-directed if you can't do that, surgical embolectomy, but high mortality. This is a patient who had a, a massive PE just because the patient was hypotensive. We gave lytic, and wow, it really cleared up. I'll do this one. Radiology calls you to say the CT scan reveals emboli in the right lower and middle segmental arteries. You begin low molecular weight heparin and Coumadin. The patient asks you, how long do I need to be on the Coumadin? You tell the patient. And the answer here is, is this the first or second clot? 
You don't know. Is this done from a provoked or unprovoked cause of the pulmonary embolism? You don't know. So you need what? More information. The answer here is going to be E. Need more info. So let's talk a little about outpatient management. This 44-year-old man is evaluated in follow-up for an episode of an unprovoked. That's the key thing. Left proximal leg DBT three months ago. Following initial anticoagulation with molecular heparin, he began treatment with Coumadin. INR testing done every three to four weeks has shown a stable therapeutic INR. He has mild left leg discomfort after a long day of standing, but does not want to limit his activity. He tolerates Coumadin well. Family history is unremarkable, and he takes no meds. On exam, vitals are normal. He has mild edema on the left leg below the knee with post-thrombotic pigmentation. The remainder of the exam is unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? So this is going to be outpatient management. Someone has an unprovoked PE or DVT, and they want to know, how long do I need to stay on anticoagulation for? So I'll answer it for you folks. So what jumps out at me as wrong is, number one, you know, just discontinue the warfarin and now do thrombophilia testing. C, sounds wrong. Just stop it right now because you asked me to. B sounds wrong. It's like, hey, just another, just another three months, you know, just a random number. Unfortunately, the answer here is going to be forever. So let's just take a, a quick talk. So when we talk about someone who has a PE or DVT from a reversible cause, a provoked cause, not this one, a provoked cause, what's the guidelines say? You need to stop the bad habit and anticoagulate them for three months. So it's three months, assuming they stop the smoking, stop the birth control. So it's going to be three months, assuming they stop what was uh, provoking it. If it's unprovoked, well, the guidelines really don't help us. On one side of the guideline, it says they need to be on anticoagulation a minimum of three months, not six, three. And on the other end of the spectrum, they need to be on anticoagulation forever. So you can imagine how frustrating it is for board exams and internists and pulmonologists that the guidelines are like, what, three months forever? So my next couple of slides are going to show you what are some of the studies they're doing to help convince people, well, should we or should we not give you a chance off lifelong anticoagulation? Because no one wants to be on lifelong medication. Of course, they want to get off, but they're always worried if they stop the anticoagulation, could they clot again? And the answer is always, of course. So answer is A. Does aspirin prevent recurrence of DVTs and PEs? The answer, surprisingly, is yes. New England Journal of Medicine 2012, people with a unprovoked, just like this patient here, it's unprovoked. They found out that if you had an unprovoked clot and you got off anticoagulation, but you agreed to go on 81 milligrams of aspirin, if you're not on it already, it decreased the chance of reoccurrence by 20%. Not a lot, but if someone really insists that they want to get off anticoagulation, maybe they'll go on aspirin. Another study came out, does D-dimer predict reoccurrence of the keyword is unprovoked DVT-PE? Surprisingly enough, the answer is yeah. So this is why sometimes you may see individuals checking a D-dimer you know, down the line is because, well, if someone insists to get off anticoagulation because it was unprovoked, if they had a normal to low D-dimer, you might consider it. I mean, they may go on aspirin too, but if that D-dimer is still elevated or high, 
you probably would say, no, it doesn't sound like a good idea. And here is the journal references right here. This is going to be the Annals of Internal Medicine. The last one was kind of interesting, gender. So does gender play a risk, is a risk factor for the chance of an unprovoked keyword, PE or DVT? The answer is yes. So my question to everyone here is, who has a higher chance of getting uh, a recurrence of their DBT or PE? Is that males or females? Everyone always kind of thinks that the answer is going to be women, but it's not. It's actually men. And here are the journal articles. So technically speaking, that the, the only people who have a chance of getting on life, get off, getting off of lifelong anticoagulation for an unprovoked P or DVT are just women right now, assuming they have a low D dimer and agree to go on aspirin. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.